Father, continue to speak to us through your word. And give us ears and minds and hearts ready to receive. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. You know, fear is an interesting dynamic of our lives. Some fears are are good, and we're, we're grateful that they've sort of been ingrained into us. It's a good thing to have a fear of touching your hand on a hot stove. But you only have to do that once, and that lesson's pretty well permanently ingrained in you. It's, it's a good fear to learn not to stick your hand into the mouth of a snarling pit bull. That's always a good thing to know, and you want to be afraid of doing that. There are, um, there are fears that we have about um, punishment that probably keep us at times from doing something illegal that we shouldn't do. You know, we may obey the speed limit because we have a fear that around the next corner there may be a car with little red lights on top of it waiting for us. Not all fears are bad, but some fears paralyze us and rule us and and are detrimental to us. We, we all probably have different kinds of fears. For me, one of my great fears is the fear of heights. I, I have a lot of respect for the people who sit in the front row of the balcony because I don't like standing up there at all. Uh, just standing there. I'm not even leaning over. Just standing there makes me weak in the knees. I just decided to back away and kind of look like that, you know. Which would tell you that I probably didn't have a real good time that, uh, that day I went up in the Space Needle in the um, glass-enclosed elevator. That was not fun, and it wasn't fun for me or the people in the elevator with me that day. Uh, I'm sure they have memories of that. Uh, you know, going to the Eiffel Tower um, was enjoyable as long as you were in the middle. Um, didn't go all the way to the top. I wish I would have, but I just couldn't do it. Um, you know, and uh, having a story from going to the Basilica Sacre Coeur in Paris, and there's a little place there where you walk outside across a little walk walkway that has a wall about that tall and a drop off of to the, I don't even know hundreds of feet down, and I'm sure there are still some French people who, on a regular basis, remember that and laugh about watching me crawl across that uh, because there was no way I was walking across that. It wasn't going to happen. Uh, you know, there I don't like bridges. Partly because they're high, you know, those high bridges. And if, if there's a bridge that has a middle lane, I'll wait in traffic to drive in that middle lane. And if it doesn't have a middle lane, I'll try to make one uh, as best I can. Because <laughs> I don't want to drive near the edge. Uh, that goes back to a story my grandfather told me years ago. But anyway, you know, we, we all have these different fears. And I suspect that as we get older, different fears, you know, take on different perspectives for us. And and I suspect that even as, as the world changes through the years, we probably have different fears today than we did in 2000. We have different fears because of events like 9-11 and other things. And all you have to do is go to an airport and you can see the effects of, of some of the fears that we have as individuals and as a nation, as a world. And the problem with some of the fears is that they can paralyze us. 
But not all fears are those kinds of things. Many of us live with fears like the fear of failure, fear of rejection, the, the fear of the unknown. And some of those fears can cause us such great pain and difficulty and prevent us from being the people that we would love to be. Because the fears control us and paralyze us. There's something of that kind of fear that we see in the events of Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And and the fear isn't in Jesus. The the fear is, is in his disciples. In the early evening hours in the garden, as the, before the soldiers even come for Jesus in the garden, he and the disciples are having a conversation, and, and Peter steps up and says, Jesus, even if all these other guys fall away, I'll stick with you to the end. Peter says, even if I have to die, if I have to give my very life for you, I will never desert you. And all the other guys, all the disciples are saying, yeah, me too, me too, me too. But by the time the night is over and the dust in the garden has settled, Jesus is cuffed and in custody and the disciples are nowhere to be found. And in Matthew 26, he says that all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. Now, you have to give Peter some credit. He does follow a distance behind this entourage taking Jesus to his trial. And he he even goes into the courtyard of the high priest. But as soon as someone recognizes him, he denies even having any knowledge of Jesus. And at the cross, we know John is at the cross. Jesus speaks to him. But it's interesting to me that when you get to uh, verse 55 of Matthew 27... His description of the people around the cross and all the other gospel writers agree. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And I know it's, it's a little bit dangerous to argue from silence. But the silence seems pretty loud that the disciples are nowhere around. Where are they? Why do they run from the garden? Why do they they seem conspicuously absent from the cross? John's gospel in chapter 20 tells us that after the disciples have discovered the tomb is empty and they don't know what's going on, John says that they were all meeting in one room and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Now, I'm not condemning them as though I wouldn't do the same thing they did. I probably would have run too. In fact, if these men who have spent so much time with Jesus and are so close to Jesus run and flee, what makes us think we would be any different? Granted, we do have history on our side. We have 2,000, we've had 2,000 years to process Jesus' message 
And we are not now and probably haven't, or few of us have ever been under threat of our lives because we're followers of Jesus. Now, there are places of the world, far too many places of the world, where our brothers and sisters face that reality every day. And we need to pray for them and support them. But here, not so much. And yet we still struggle at times with our fears about following Jesus. Isn't it some form of fear that makes us hesitant to share about Christ when we feel prompted to do so? Isn't it some form of fear that that makes us hesitant to be a voice for the voiceless because it goes against the grain of how everyone else is thinking and what everyone else is saying? Isn't it some form of, of fear that causes us to ignore God's promptings to be generous and vulnerable and forgiving? Because we know that in this world, people who are generous and vulnerable and forgiving tend to get taken advantage of. Isn't it some form of fear that makes us hesitant to sacrifice, surrender ourselves to God, to his will, his plans, his purposes, his kingdom? We're hesitant because we're not quite sure what we're getting ourselves into. And we might even say to God, okay, if you can tell me exactly where this is going to lead, that'll help me trust you more. That's the whole point. We're afraid to trust. And we have a tendency to flee from the hard things of God. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to, we don't have to let our fears paralyze us. In fact, Jesus goes to the cross and he dies on the cross in order to set us free from our fears and to give us power over our fears. From the moment we enter this world, we're doing everything we can to avoid pain and to avoid those things that that frighten us. And so we live, it's ingrained into our mindset that death is bad and life is good. Pain is avoided. Comfort is what we seek. Giving up what we have, giving up ourselves, is bad. Getting and and keeping is good. And then we come to Jesus and we look at the cross and we see that he turns everything upside down. He endures pain to comfort us. He gives up what is rightfully his so that we might gain what none of us deserve. And after all that he's done, Excuse me. After all that he's done for us, he's calling us to come and to surrender and to trust. Because Jesus dies, now death has meaning and significance. Because Jesus dies and lives for those who are in him, for those who have trusted him, If death is the worst thing that can happen to us and we've already surrendered our lives to Christ, we've already died to self, what more can we fear? The cross is sort of a double-edged sword for us and for our fear. It's the ultimate call of God to come and die, which might well make us feel even more fear. 
but it's also the ultimate solution and power enabling us to overcome our fear. We have have a great affinity for the cross and all that it means. But we also need to understand that it's the cross that calls every single one of us to come and to die. It's Jesus who says, take up your cross and follow me. To surrender ourselves, our dreams, our plans, our treasures, our relationships. We surrender to him because he's given up all for us. This truth is is at the heart of the table of our Lord. This table is a call both to, to eat and die and to eat and live. We eat the bread and we drink the cup as an act of surrender to Christ, as an act of identification with Christ's sufferings. But we also eat the bread and drink the cup as a sign of our openness to God and our desire and our willingness for him to fill us with grace and power to live as he calls us to live. And we come and we die so that we can truly live. The disciples eventually work through their fears. In the end, every one of them is martyred for their faith, except for John. Every one of them overcomes those fears through the power of Christ. And a lot of that has to do with their coming to grips with the resurrection and and the events of, of the Holy Spirit upon them at Pentecost. But it all comes back to the cross. If the cross tells us anything, it tells us that you can't truly live until you die. You can't have a resurrection unless you have a death. Until we die to ourselves, we will struggle to live. Until we surrender to Christ, fear will rule us and fear will paralyze us and fear will control us. And we will never really know what it means to truly live as God created us to live. In joy and in freedom. It comes back to the cross. Fred Craddock is now retired as a Years of pastoral ministry and teaching. He's one of my preaching heroes. Born in Tennessee, raised in Tennessee. And he says that as a, as a teenager, he grew up in the church. He, through the years of his early years he, of his life, he heard all the stories about people who sacrificed for God, and gave their life for God. And he heard stories of people like Albert Schweitzer and Eric Little and William Carey and missionaries who, who sacrificed so much for the gospel. And he said, as a young person sitting in church listening to all those stories, he said, I, w- I said to myself, it's a shame you can't be a real Christian here in this little town. I mean, nobody's chasing us. Nobody's imprisoning us. Nobody's killing Christians here. No, you can't really be a Christian here. And then he went away to summer camp and there was one night, just a magnificent experience of being around the lake and candles, and, and, and it was such a moving time. And he went back to his cabin, and he, he lay down in his cot, and he couldn't sleep. He was just awake all night, wide awake. 
And he kept asking himself and thinking to himself, what would it be like to give your life for the gospel? To drink the cup. To be baptized with the baptism with which Jesus is baptized. To give your life. And in that, in that night, he turned to God and he said, God, I'll, I'll give my life. I'll give my life. He said, I pictured myself maybe running in front of a moving train to rescue a little child. Or, or swimming out into the, into the tide and, and rescuing a drowning person. So I pictured myself standing against a gray wall and a soldier saying to me, you have one more chance to recant your faith and refusing, hearing that soldier cry, ready, aim, fire. The body slumps and the flags are at half mass and the story is told all over the world of Fred who gave his life for the gospel. And all these ideal images of what it would be like to give my life. He said, I was sincere then, as I've been sincere the last 45 years. But I've come to figure out something. Giving your life to Christ. It, it, it begins often in a moment But it's not as though you sit down and you write one big check that covers your whole life and you close your checkbook and you're done. It's more